Hey everyone, this is part two of the two-part discussion with Matt Bowman. Uh, we talk about his book, um, starting off with the story of how the book came to be uh, published back in 2012, and then kind of get in the nitty-gritty of uh, some other elements of the book. Um, very interesting. Um, thank you very much for all your support so far. I've heard back um, some feedback, very positive from a lot of people. Feel free to reach out. My email is themarkpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me at Twitter at themarkpodcast. At, and also um, follow the SoundCloud account, and you'll be able to get updates as these new podcasts come out. I plan to do about one per week, and uh, they'll be coming to you. So without further ado, let's go right into the interview. So the book was published yes. in 2012 or mm-hmm. 2011. 12. January, January 2012. January 2012. Um, it was published right in the lead up to like Mitt Romney's running for president. Right. Um, which is why it exists. Which is why it exists. <laughs> um, what was the publisher? Random House. Random House. Okay, it's a very big publisher. And so initially it was uh, Richard Bushman was yeah. asked to publish this book. Sure, and well, he couldn't do it for some reason. And here's, then here's he's like, story. here's Matt Bowman. <laughs> he can do it. Yeah, so, he, can, he can be so my proxy. I got, a, I got a phone call on, oh boy, I want to say June 24th. It was right around the end of June. June 24, 2011. 2011. And, and, and I didn't recognize the number when it came up on my phone. And so I just answered the phone and said, hello. And this person said, hi, this is John Meacham. Do you know who I am? And fortunately, <laughs> oh, Meacham, I yeah. did know who he was. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he is, of course, he, he is an author, a journalist. He's won the Pulitzer Prize for History. He's also a, a, an acquisitions editor at Random House, which means it's his job to kind of go out and get books. Does he work for like NBC, NBC or one of the... Uh, he worked for Newsweek for a while. I'm not okay, sure okay. where he is now. Yeah, okay. But he appears on MSNBC a lot. Yeah, okay. okay. Um, yeah, so he... And I, I said, yes, I do know who you are. Um, and then I said, I gave your book on Andrew Jackson to my dad for Christmas last year. And, oh, wow. Yeah, which I had, fortunately. And then he said, oh, you're a great American. And <laughs> that was wow. nice of him. And then I said, thank you. Why are you calling me? Um, so was it at that point you kind of knew you probably had the job and whatever? Oh, I didn't even know what, oh, okay. I didn't even know what he wanted. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> so, okay. And then he said, then he, well, then he told me, you know, he said, I, I think there's a better than 50-50 chance that Mitt Romney is going to be the Republican nominee for president next oh, year. Oh, yeah, it was 90%. Yeah, and, 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 I, and I said, fair. And he said, I want a book on Mormonism to sell when that happens. Okay. And then he told me, um, you know, he spoke with, with Richard Bushman, who, of course, is uh, emeritus professor of history at Columbia, author of Rough Stone Rolling, the definitive Joseph Smith biography. Yeah, he's um, pretty well known in the Mormon community. Yes, yeah, certainly. He's, um, he's kind well. of a you know grandfather um, yeah. of, of Mormon intellectuals today. And uh, Richard had turned him down because Richard was has been well. He, he's too cool for school. He's working on two other projects. He's he's writing a book about farmers in early America, which is what he was working on before he started Rough Stone Rolling. He's also writing a book about the Golden Plates. So a book on farmers was more interesting. Yeah. Than, so. <laughs> <laughs> so but but Richard, I had known Richard for a while, and so Richard gave John Meacham my phone number. Um, yes. And Meacham said, I don't want you to write this book about Mormonism. And I said, oh, that's nice. Um, and I, of course, I mean, how can you say no to that, right? Um, and I said, that's wonderful. Um, and I said, I think I can maybe have it for you by the end of the year. And he said, no, I need it by Labor Day. Oh. And this was, you know, end of June. And I said, that's impossible. And he said, okay, I can give you two more weeks, September 15th. And I said, fair. Oh. Um, so I wrote, the, I wrote it between June and September of um 2011, and it was published January 2012. I, I mean, I, I just, I read the book. I, I thought it was very good. I thought it was it was insightful. Oh, it had a lot of, you know, good anecdotes in it. Um, but it felt like you were compressing so much yeah, into such a small absolutely, absolutely. bit of time. Yeah. And, like, you were just trying to, like, race through yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole history of, like, the more, like 150 years. <laughs> yeah, of, yeah. There's, there's eight chapters in it. I wrote about a chapter a week, um, roughly, was my pace. And, you know, I mean, it's... Oh, it's about 100,000 words total, which makes it a kind of a mid-length book. And yeah, so I was 
10,000 words a week, something like that. Wow. Yeah, it was it was it was quite a <laughs> quite a ride. I mean, as well, I mean, I would say it's it's, it's a bit closer to like a scholarly work mm-hmm. than it is kind of more of a mainstream. Well, it's a, it's, a, it's would, a bit closer. I would call it a synthesis. Synthesis. Right. That that is that I unfortunately, you know, if I had had to go into the archives and dig around and, and find out all the information about polygamy and all the rest that I use in the book, I, there's no way it could have been done. Yeah. Uh, but what I did was I took. All of these other books that had been written about Mormonism in the past forty years, and, and articles too, right? And, yeah, a good and deal of journal. Articles. Towards the end, it's a lot of journal mm-hmm. articles, right? Okay, yeah. yeah, and I boil them all down and say, well, what's the picture of Mormonism that we get? And you know, and I think you know, in a lot of ways, it's a useful book because of that, because there had not been a book like this written since the seventies. Yeah. Um, a kind of like what was broad, the book in the seventies? Oh, and there's two was, of them. Yeah, there's the what? story of the Latter Day Saints, which was published by Deseret Book. Okay. Um, and then there's the Mormon Experience, which was published. Oh, who published? I think Knopf published that. Okay, but not like I'm not a main like random. Knopf is Knopf is, Knopf is pretty mainstream. Knopf is okay, a big okay. mainstream publisher, but the book's yeah. you know 35 years old now. Yeah. Um. So and there's been a lot done and a lot discovered and a lot written. And yeah, the public view of Mormons now. has been kind of shifting around. Yeah. And... Well, I think one of the major things, and one of the things I try to do in the book, is that there has not, and and unless you count my book, there still really isn't a kind of narrative of Mormonism in the 20th century. Right. Yeah, you said in the bibliographic yeah. essay and one of them. Yeah, there really isn't. And I mean, if you think about, you know, I mean, Institute, for instance, or the sort of story of Mormonism that you get from, from official church sources is the first quarter of it is about Joseph Smith. And right. then the second, you know, the, or the young. first third is about Joseph Smith. Sometimes even the first half is about Joseph Smith. Right. And then the second third, the second the second third is about Brigham Young. And Utah and coming yeah. out. Yeah, and then kind of everything since Brigham Young is crammed into the last 20%. <sighs> Right, and that's kind of that's sort of what most Latter Day Saints know. You know, most Latter Day Saints don't. If I were to ask you, what are the two or three most important events of Heber J. Grant's presidency? You know, yeah, it's just like word of wisdom. Yeah, yeah. You know, people people just don't know much about that, right? And so what I tried to do is, you know, the, the last really about the, almost the last half of the book is about the twentieth century. It's about Mormonism since the end of polygamy, um, and I, I tried to present kind of you know, here's a narrative that we can use to understand this. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it really said, in a way, I mean, that might be a generational thing, too. I, I mean, I don't know. There's kind of the whole baby boomer thing. Mm-hmm. Pretty much anything that happened before the baby boomers kind of got snuffed out. Because, you know, it's like, oh, the 60s and right. the 70s were happening. And yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't really care so much about the 30s. Like, oh, the Depression. And, uh, and that was a part of our parents. You know, greatest generation. Yeah, you know, it kind of gets... I, I think the book was great. I The question that I kind of have... Um, with why people care about Mormons kind of throughout that. I mean, Mormons have been a fascination of American culture for, mm-hmm. for a long time. But now, I mean, do you think now, I mean, the whole polygamy thing, I mean, that's mostly, right. we're pretty well separated from that now, although not not, and not entirely. Yeah. Um, are, are, are people interested now because Mormons are famous? Um, You're well, famous yeah. celebrity Mormons. I mean, I think, is that driving well, I a lot of I think what you say is right. You know, that for a very, very long time, um, Mormons have sort of served other Americans as this sort of funhouse mirror, maybe, you know, that, that they look at Mormons and they see kind of a bizarro version of themselves, right? In the 19th century, Mormons were attacked for being un-American right. um, because of because of theocracy, more or less, right? Because the church, you know, Brigham Young was basically running Utah and the church at the same time. Right, people would vote all in, like, one block. Mm-hmm. Yeah, There's this idea yeah. that they followed their, like, you know... Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. And, you know, and, and often, you know, I mean, the church would pick candidates for office, right? That sort of thing. And also for polygamy, right? The polygamy, and polygamy was seen as really this immoral reversion to a kind of a primitive way of life in the 19th century and, and something that was counter what, you know, America was all about, which was progress and upward mobility and all of that. And, in the tw- and, and Mormons worked really, really hard to distance themselves 
from that in the 20th century. In the 19th century, Mormons embraced it. You can find a lot of stuff that early apostles like Parley Pratt or Brigham Young said that that more or less castigates the United States and says, you know, I mean, during the Civil War, Brigham Young said more or less a plague on both your houses. I hope you destroy each other, the North and the South, right? Um, Right. Harley Pratt said, we're, we're leaving America and taking all that's best with America with us because the United States is just a horrible wasteland now. Um, in the 20th century, though, Mormons really tried to embrace American values, tried to adopt American respectability. They began very, very hard to distance themselves from polygamy in the you know, 19-teens, 1920s yeah. particularly. Right. Um, but, you know, with only, I think, moderate success, um, you know, there, there's a, there's a, a historian... Uh, at the University of Utah named Paul Reeve, right, who just has published a book. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, heard his uh, podcast. Kind of, yeah, kind of looking at this question. The racial issues? Yeah. Well, uh, but he says more or less that uh, in the 19th century, Mormons were un-American. He says that Mormons were not white in the 20th century, which is more or less true. Americans did not think that Mormons were white, and Mormons themselves said, no, we're making a, a better race by practicing polygamy. Yeah, um, well, that's kind of... But, but in, yeah, the 20th, whole, yeah. in the 20th century, though, Reeve says, Mormons became American, they became assimilated. And really, I think, you know, the, maybe 20 years or so after the war, Second World War is sort of the peak of Mormon assimilation, where Mormon values and American values really overlap nicely. But since the 60s and 70s, I think Mormons have, have fallen out of step with a lot of American culture since. And, 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 and they're looked at now, and I think Romney is sort of a, a perfect image of this, as being too American, too kind of perfect, too square. Too 1950s American? Yeah, exactly. Early right. 1950s. Too, too, yeah. Kind of, too kind of emblematic. Uh, you know, and almost like, um, you know, there, there's the, 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 the scientific notion of the uncanny valley, right? Yeah. An uncanny valley being where you have a robot that looks perfectly human, but it's too perfect. And because it's too perfect, you're still very suspicious of it. You can sense there's something wrong with it. And, no, I, and, and I, I think, thought about that. I think I was talking to you in like a hallway or something uh-huh. like that, and you mentioned that a few months ago. And I've actually thought about that actually on a number of occasions. Mm-hmm. And like, it's not even just like in like within America, but I think like with like countries too. Sure. Like I, one country I studied Brazil yeah. a lot is like, there is kind of this notion, like in some ways, America shares so many similarities with Brazil, and mm-hmm. that it's that's why it feels so weird when we kind of like try to compare each other. Yeah. It feels so different. But comparing with like you know China or something like that, it's like we already know we're yes. like a world apart in so yes. many ways. So yeah, we don't exactly. even really kind of think of ourselves in the same terms. Yeah, and so yeah exactly. That's all oh, no, 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 no. But, but, but I think it fits, right? It totally <laughs> sure, fits. Sure, sure. And, and I mean, there's you know, gosh, you know, the, the Scientology documentary came out a little while ago, and, and uh, right. a couple of years back, I taught a class on Mormonism. At going S- clear, right? That's what it's called. Yeah, going, going clear. clear. Did you like that? Or did you watch it? Uh, I don't like it actually. You did see it. Okay, you watch it. And the book that it's based on, I've read the book. The book is better. Um, everyone says that, right? But I think the book is a more sort of judicious and and yeah. and sensible look at Scientology. I, yeah, I saw an interview the director did. Yeah. I just felt like you know, these guys are really trying to take them to task in yeah. a way that didn't seem entirely fair. Yeah. And just, I the documentary is kind of it's kind of scaremongering. I think yeah. it's sort of it's sort of yeah, it's it's lurid. Um, it's sensationalistic. But uh, you know, I mean, I think. Have you been inside their their uh, in any one of their meeting their houses? They're like I went to the one in DC once years ago. Yeah, yeah. just a little bit. But I went to the one in, in Sunrise Avenue mm-hmm. or Sun, Sunset Boulevard, Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. In LA? Yeah, yeah. It was you know it was nice. They offered me tea and coffee, and mm-hmm. I read about E. Hubbard. Yeah, L. Ron Hubbard. L. Ron Hubbard. You know quite a bit about him and their little yeah. exhibit there. Sorry, let's go oh, back. No, no, let's go back. <laughs> the Uncanny Valley. So yeah, sure. Well, in Scientology, right? Scientology. And I think Scientology is an interesting comparison. And of course, Scientology is deeply different from Mormonism in a lot of ways. Well, um, what ways would you distinguish it most? Uh, oh, well, I mean, the first one being that I think Scientology, well, 
Mormonism is is basically you know it's it's a it's a variant of Christianity, right? It's a yeah. Christian religion. Um, it, it's very deeply um, American in that sense as well. It's very much a product in a lot of ways of, of the sort of nineteenth century atmosphere that Joseph Smith emerged from. It carries a lot of those markers of nineteenth of a nineteenth century American Christian religion. Um, Whereas Scientology is more of a, a Scientology like war kind of yes, like self help yes, kind of era. It's so it's so twentieth century. Yeah. It's so inflected. It's deeply like you say the self help movement. Um, it's a very post. Freudian kind of religion, yeah, um, yeah, yes, you know, yeah, kind of that right, psych- right. Kind of psychological Self, yeah, way. Yeah, right. um, it's also very inflected by kind of this this twentieth century fascination with technology. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, it's not a Christian religion <laughs> in any real sense, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, the, I mean, the differences between them are vast, um, but in a lot of ways, they're both viewed as being by other Americans as being sort of... In the social context, yeah. Yeah, kind of weird deviants. Fringy, right? sort of different, you know, very inward-looking. Yeah, kind of and I think the most fascinating almost. thing about Mormons in America today is that Mormons feel normal. Mormons don't feel like they are. there's something about their religion that separates them from America. Right, which probably kind of shocked sometimes when it's like, oh my gosh, you think we're that different? Yes, it's like, wow, exactly. I definitely don't feel like we're exactly. that distant from... Exactly. You know, we, we go to church to a different place, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we don't feel like we're not American, right? right, right, right. Um, but other Americans do. And I think, you know, it's... Yeah. it's if it, <laughs> I was once, um, only once, but this happened to me a couple of years ago with my friend John Turner, yeah. um, who teaches at George Mason University, who published recently a, a really good biography of Brigham Young, yeah. gave a talk about this biography and I was there and then afterward he invited me to a little reception where he had kind of a Q&A with a bunch of faculty members a bunch of professors and they did not know that there was a Mormon in the room <laughs> and just the things that people will say when they don't think there's a Mormon in a room I, I think are really remarkable right right and Mormons just aren't aware of it because yeah we, we, you know, Mormons are always there yeah so, I, another way I've seen that too is I had, I had a former girlfriend she was from Bulgaria and um, she would tell me a lot of the stuff people would say because she kind of joined the church when she was 18 I mean and she's a girl and she's from a different country I mean, yeah. I think people didn't have that same image, right. you know, as yeah, they think like, oh, you're person that's born in the church, you know, mm-hmm. Mormons. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, Americans have similar. a stereotype of what a Mormon is like, right? And that stereotype right. isn't it wrong, basically. Yeah, um, sure. Some people don't fit that, they don't think of Mormon. Right. Um, but yeah, I think, you know... I, but isn't that just like, that, that just shows that people are really judging the kind of like social perception sure. of what a yeah. Mormon is. They're yeah. not necessarily judging like the religion per se, because they don't have really the deeper understanding yeah. of the religion, right? No, it's just don't. like a social... Yeah, which is exactly the same for Scientology. Right. And, and this is when I taught this class on Mormonism to a bunch of Mormon students at Southern Virginia University, which is a Mormon school. Um, I told them at the beginning, you all need to know this, that other Americans look at Mormonism and they feel about it the same way you, all of my students, feel about Scientology. And they were blown away. Like, no, not at all. We're not. Scientologists are weird. They're creepy. They do right. strange rituals. They believe in crazy stuff. Right? And I'm like, yeah, well, yeah. Americans think of Mormons in exactly the same, those same terms. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I think... If anything, I mean, I think that the the Mormon curriculum kind of, or this, what's taught in LDS, like in churches, mm-hmm. it kind of encourages that in a sense, that it kind of teaches people to be you know, in the right and that you're, you're good people and trying mm-hmm. to be right. And so, you know, in a way, you know, it's to be something that's not, you know, in the mainstream, is kind of, it's kind of bad in Mormon culture. I mean, we don't really, you know, it's very hierarchical. It's very authoritarian. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say authoritarian. It's kind of a, there's a certain, <laughs> okay, okay yeah, there's a certain stigma to that word. But, uh, um, but it's very hierarchical, you know, and so it's good to be like in a certain path and following sure. the path. So yeah, yeah. to be a little bit different, I think Mormon, it, it's a tough time to really feel like, you know, to be in the minority. And I think when people first encounter that, it can be very kind of shocking, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, kind of when Mormons can get that sense. And I think that happened with Romney. You know, I think a lot of people were, a lot of Mormons were really hurt, you know, it had, it had sort of the beating. And I, actually, I think it was kind of a light beating um, that Mormons took in 2012. Oh, in the, the lead-up to it or, yeah. or in his actual losing? Or... Oh, no, in 2012. In 2012, just, just the lead-up In the yeah. whole campaign, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, that, you know, there, there, there was, I mean, there was some stuff that was kind of dragged out 
Um, but uh, but less than there could have been, I think. Yeah, I, I worked on his campaign. I don't know if I mentioned that. Oh yeah, Did yeah, I you have. That? Yeah. Oh, in the past. Oh, okay. Not, yeah. not here, but. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I did. I worked on his campaign in Boston, and um, I mean, there was a lot of Mormons like in certain departments. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, that kind of had like a Mormon director. You know, and he'd bring in a lot of BYU people yeah, or whatever. Yeah. But in the digital department where I worked, um, there was about 100 staff, and there was only like maybe five or six yeah, that were, yeah. were LDS. It was really a small number. But yeah, when stuff would come up, I mean, even people that were there, like they, when they were kind of sort of like on the side of Mitt Romney was the Mormon mm -hmm. guy, and they kind of felt like, you know, they're getting all these attacks on their religion, and they're yeah. kind of like, you know, like they would kind of have these, <laughs> kind of a half-hearted defense where they're kind of like, I don't see why this is such a big deal, where inside they kind of felt like, I know I should care more, right, right, right. but as they were thinking about it a little more critically, they're kind of like, it doesn't matter, does it? I, I don't think it does. Yeah. Because <laughs> <yeah, laughs> like the treatment was so strong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, um, so you wrote this book, um, were they pretty happy with it when you finished it? Were you? Yeah, well, I think they were just happy that I managed to do it in 10 weeks. Did you work like the whole time? Like, were you? Uh, mostly yeah. over the summer, which was nice. So but, I wasn't. I wasn't teaching. I had a, oh, okay. you know, I have summers off because I'm an academic, and so I could. I had a couple other things that I wanted to be doing, but I just set them aside and, and just dug into that for. So we like yeah. 10, 12 hours a day, pretty much. Oh, I can't write that much. <laughs> um, okay. I'd write usually. I don't know, three to five hours a day, but then yeah, I mean. Once you once you write that long, you kind of burn out, or at least I do, you know. Yeah. So I could only put that much work into it. By the time school started, um, I was, yeah, I was, I had, I had six chapters done by the time school started in you know, late August. So I had about a month to do the last oh, two chapters. Gosh. Did you get some help yeah. from people? Were they, were they... I had some people review it. Um, I, I wish I'd sent out to more people to review, actually. But I think a lot of, I asked a bunch of people, but I think most of them were just like, oh, your pace is crazy. I can't, I can't read it that quickly. That's about a thousand words a day. Um, roughly. roughly, maybe a little more. A little more than a thousand words mm -hmm. a day. Gosh, man, that's a lot. Yeah, I and mean, some days better than others. The first chapter, actually, the easy the, the easy part was the beginning. Yeah. Um, you know, the sort of Joseph Smith narrative, which, you know, I, I wrote that chapter maybe two days. It was it came out very, very quickly. Um, so that kind of gave you the confidence that, hey, I can do this. Yeah, when, you know, I can kind of bank all these, you know, the sort of Joseph Smith chapter. I mean, the second chapter was a beast. That's the, um, the Missouri Kirtland chapter, but just because organizing it was really, really hard. Yeah. Uh, the chapter about Nauvoo came pretty quickly, though. I like that one. Nauvoo yeah. history is really interesting. Yeah, Nauvoo is very interesting. But you, you know, the later chapters, though, um, yeah, six, seven, eight, they were they were tougher. But fortunately, I had I had a lot of time to work on them. So. There's one piece um, you got. In, I think it's in the correlation chapter. I think which is like second to last. You mentioned um, the little anecdotal, a couple paragraphs about Saturday's Warrior. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which I, I mean, I did, I did grow yeah. up in a house. We did actually borrow a Saturday's yeah, Warrior yeah, several yeah. times. My mom liked yeah. it. And yeah. I, we probably watched it, I don't know, yeah. 10, 20 yeah. times. Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah, what was Saturday's Warrior? Were you I, a fan? I, I, wrote, I wrote, actually, I wrote an article on Slate about Saturday's Warrior during yeah. the campaign, too. Yeah, it's, it's such a fascinating text. Um, Saturday's Warrior is really interesting because it was a huge, huge hit. I think it's hard to sort of grasp how. Kind of culturally ubiquitous it was. Um, for well, why do you think it was? Like I mean, you got the whole kind of love story that kind of spans yeah. you know, from from well, before. The, and the interesting thing is, that, well, so you know, the Arcosides where you're right is that this couple meets in the pre-existence, right. and then they get born, and and they're both on Earth. And they're and destined they, to meet each other, but, yeah, but it, they almost don't because yes, they but then, go with the wrong person. Right, exactly. Then these missionaries save the day and all of that. Um, this is actually not an uncommon narrative in Mormon literature. There's a book called Added Upon, which was published in the mid 1890s, which has a very close the same plot. Um, so it is kind of an, it's an archetypical Mormon narrative, right? It's the sort of journey of the human soul from pre-existence to the end. Um, and so I think that has something to do with it. It also sort of hit um, at a time, I think, well, at a really kind of fortunate time. This, oh, the 60s, 70s? Yeah. Kind of this, this, well, this era is one in which actually evangelicals 
were starting to detach from American culture and build their own parallel culture, in part because all the, all the cultural upheaval of the 60s really turned a lot of socially conservative people off. And so this is when evangelicals start making their own movies and writing their own novels and sort of... And so and I think Cyrus Warrior is kind of a Mormon example of that, right? Mormons producing literature for themselves. Um, and it was a huge hit. And I, you know, I say sometimes a little, maybe a little tongue-in-cheek, but... But um, you know, Saturday's Warrior is maybe the most influential Mormon theological text of the last half of the twentieth century. Within the Mormon uh, be, community, right? That's yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it, it injects, it brings in, I think, and and really made very popular a lot of a lot of kind of I, I don't know. I mean, certainly not out of out of the realm of possibility, but but certainly not, I think, central doctrinal notions about the nature of the pre-existence and about marriage and stuff like that. You know, the idea of soulmates, um, the idea of picking your family in the pre-existence, the idea of knowing or having particular missions given to you in the pre-existence, right? All this sort of pseudo-doctrine. I mean, growing up in the um, 80s, like, I really couldn't distinguish between between that and uh, what was doctrine. Because yeah. they pretty much run one and the same. Yeah, well, I, I Because you learn, you don't really learn from the teachers or from the texts and stuff. You learn from like, what people say and what people are talking about. Yeah. And that stuff's a lot well, more funner. It sticks, <laughs> sticks a lot better. Yeah, and it's also, I mean, I, I think this is just another kind of fascinating aspect of Mormonism generally, is that we don't really have an official doctrine. Right. You know, like oh, how, really? Yeah. Oh, that actually that's an interesting thing. <laughs> well, but if I were to ask you, like, like, what is Mormon doctrine about the preexistence? I would refer you to Bruce R. McConkie's Mormon doctrine. Mormon doctrine out of print, <laughs> two thousand and ten, according to your book. It is um, preexistence. I mean, there's a few verses in the Pearl of Great Price mm-hmm. which mention it. Beyond that, there's not a whole yeah. lot. You know, but there right? are a lot of ideas about the pre-existence that you will hear from a lot of sources, including Saturday's Warrior, right? right. And I mean, there's so many, and there's so many issues like this. Um, and I think this is actually, and not to be taken wrongly, I think this is actually kind of a strength of Mormonism. It means that Mormonism is quite flexible. Right. You know, the, 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 the we, I mean, like, for instance, when polygamy is abandoned, Mormonism can kind of drop stuff and pivot. Or a 1978 revelation, um, you know, granting priesthood and temple attendance to Mormons of African descent. Um, there was well, a well, here. Oh, sorry. For the oh, yeah. I was just going to say there was a lot of. I mean, Bruce R. McConkie, you know, his famous speech that he gave after that revelation, in which he said, "Forget everything I have said on this. Forget everything that Brigham Young has said on this, because we spoke with insufficient light." Yeah. Um, and I mean, much of the reasons that Brigham Young or Orson Pratt or Bruce R. McConkie gave for the priesthood ban, if you had asked a Mormon in 1971, is what Elder McConkie says about why African men can't hold the priesthood doctrine. Right. What would they have said? They probably would have said yes. You know, you know. Well, since Elder McConkie's Mormon Doctrine was published in the fifties and then reissued in the sixties, um, that's kind of the last of those works, right? There has not really been a general authority who has said, "I'm going to write down what Mormon doctrine is on all of these issues." I'm not going to, you know, the general authorities have avoided right. books like that now, and instead, what they are emphasizing is be a good person, live a good life, right? Right. Do things excellent, pay your tithing, go to the temple, all of that but, stuff, But I mean, right? yeah, I, I, and I guess is that maybe maybe this kind of answers the question, though, is like, mm-hmm. you know, we have a people that are kind of cultivated in that in that way for mm-hmm. so long to be rigid and yeah. tough and to kind of eschew all this like mm-hmm. outside influence. You know, and at what point when you have to kind of make those turns or those sure. kind of adjustments, you know, well, like, I, do people just kind of get in line and say, yeah, sure. Or, or well, people are kind of like, wait a minute, I'm going to, I'm going to stick my foot in the ground well, and say, I, think, I don't you know, think I think you'll find Mormons kind of all over the place, right? Yeah, I mean, if, yeah, if you were to say, yeah. I mean, if you were to go to any given ward and ask the members of that ward, right. um, was the earth created in seven days? Some people was it created say, in a million years, right. or was it? You know, was it? I mean, you would get a wide range of opinions, sure. and I think one sure. of the good parts of, about this sort of move away from 
books like Mormon Doctrine is that there is space for that now, right? Your, your bishop doesn't care what you believe about evolution as long as you show up to church and you know, and, and do and do the kinds of things you're asked to do there. And according to your book, right? he doesn't care about that because Heber J. Grant <laughs> said he didn't care. There's an episode where they kind of tried to decide. Is. Heber J. Grant was right. church, president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints yes. in the 1930s and 40s. Yes. He's presented basically two ideas yes. from two apostles. Who, one said, gave a kind of creationist sort of view of the earth was, mm-hmm. and then another which gives a very scientific you know, evolutionary kind of view mm-hmm. of the world and then yeah. Heber J. Grant kind of just calls it a draw and yes. says you know we're going to talk about spiritual matters yes. and leave yes. this to the scientists yeah, yeah exactly exactly which was a, probably a wise move on his part right I mean you did have that's why he was president right? yeah. <laughs> you did have you did have in the 20 I mean this is when evolution is a huge controversy in America generally right this is the period of the Scopes trial oh was it or I thought Scopes trial was a little later Scopes trial was 26 1926 oh okay so it's right and, around and, yeah, and so, and so the Scopes trial is okay. happening and then and you have then what was being H. Roberts, who was president, who was the president of the 70, right. um, and, and to a lesser extent, James Talmadge. And B. H. Roberts um, was kind of like the, the church historian, or, or kind of the de facto Yeah, he was the official church historian. I mean, we could say he was, he was the Hugh Nibley of the first half of the 20th century. Sure. He was the guy, I mean, the church actually would send him. Hugh Nibley was a famous Mormon scholar mm-hmm. in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Mm-hmm. He, yeah. Well, and defender of the faith. Google right? Hugh Nibley. <laughs> yes. Um, and this is what Roberts was. Roberts was someone um, that the church would send out when it was challenged. Um, there's, there's a famous debate called the roberts Vanderdonk debate in which Roberts is debating. He, he has a debate with a Protestant minister about the nature of God and it's covered by the national media and so on and so forth. So Roberts is kind of a, 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 a like bulldoggy kind of defender of Mormonism, right? right. Um, but Roberts does believe, though, he believes that the earth is millions of years old. Mm-hmm. Um, Roberts believes that there were what he called pre-Adamites. That right. is, pre-Adamites were like Neanderthals, Australopithecines, right? Hominids, kind of early proto-humans, um, who he said were not, they did not have souls, like human beings. Right, right. It's so, essentially arguing that but, evolution yes. happened, but yes. Adam and Eve were the first two that were placed with souls yes, within the direction of humans. children of God, etc. Right? So exactly. it allows for the evolution just to yes. fit. Perfectly. So this is what Roberts thinks. Um, he says this publicly, and Joseph Fielding Smith, who was an apostle, um, calls him out publicly as well. And and, and this is you know, kind of in a, a more rollicking era where apostles would get up in general conference and say, I think what you just heard from Elder so-and-so is incorrect. And, oh, and man. Stuff like that. That, and, and so days, man. Talmadge, James Talmadge then gives a speech, called a famous speech called The Earth and Man, uh, which he delivers in the tabernacle, and he's an apostle too. And his, in The Earth and Man, he says, the earth is millions of years old. Um, you know, there's been life on Earth for millions of years. Evolution is a fact. He does, though, stop short of saying you know, that human beings are the product of evolution. He kind of falls near more near Roberts's camp here. Um, but he does say the Earth is millions of years. Well, ago. yeah, and I think at BYU they're actually required to teach them the curriculum mm-hmm. today that Adam and Eve were the first, like, like humans. That, that whatever happened with evolution, yes. you know, but at and least Adam is, and Eve were descended from. Yes, Adam and, Eve. and that, this that's, is that's there required. Is a, there was a first presidency statement in 1906 right. that more or less states that Adam and Eve are the primal parents of our race. Uh, but this first president statement also leaves open how Adam and Eve came to be. So it says it's possible maybe that Adam and Eve were the products of evolution as well. But they were, you know, Adam and Eve did exist. But but these apostles, right, Talmadge and Joseph Fielding Smith and B.H. Roberts were all kind of getting into it. And so finally, in 1933, the first presidency calls a meeting and says, I want, and Heber J. Grant is a president of the church, and he says, I want Elder Smith to present his case, then Elder Roberts will present his case. And then the first presidency rules, more or less, as you say, um, Grant says, um, well, the famous quotation is, I see no advantage to a continuance of this discussion. He says, I'm not going to rule on it, but I want you all to stop fighting about it, more or less. And 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 yeah. Roberts actually does. Roberts had a book that he wrote in which he argued for pre-Adamites. Oh, he kept the fight going. And no, Roberts does not publish the book. Oh, he doesn't publish the book. Oh. Um, and then Roberts dies a couple of years later. And then after, fairly soon after Heber J. Grant dies, um, Joseph Fielding Smith publishes his book. 
um, The Origin and Destiny of Man, in which he says, you know, for special creation and argues against evolution and all those sorts of things. So in some ways, I mean, there have been people who have argued that... Um, that Mormonism became quite conservative on the issue of evolution, largely because Joseph Fielding Smith outlived everybody else. <laughs> so. But it wasn't really that out of touch with most, you know, conservative Christian groups of the no, time, right? No, no, no. So, so it was very much in... in yeah. I, guess, I guess that's where I'm kind of sitting, that generationally it takes time to, to, to change, you know, things mm-hmm. take, take time to change, but um, you know, people adopt at different rates, you know, different generation, and um, or... or I don't know. Yeah, I mean, well, but you know, again, I think you know, as I said before, I think I kind of think this is a strength of Mormonism. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a room within it for a lot of different voices about evolution, right? Yeah. Um, there there's a room within it for a lot of different ideas about things like that, and 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 that I think you know there, there's no official Mormon doctrine about how the atonement works, right? There's no, um, you know, there, there's it's a, you can you can believe a lot of different things. And still be a practicing member of the church. The thing we really emphasize is practice. Is that willingness to live as a Mormon, and, to, and you know, and in some ways that may be more important than what you believe specifically about particular points. And you have you have I mean conference talks, right? Like oh, Elder Uchtdorf's talk a couple of years back, um, which pre- one? President Wixom's talk from this last conference, right? Which she talks about doubt and she talks about having questions, and and I think you know it's important to recognize that having questions is not a bad thing. Um, Right. I mean, I remember growing up and it was always like, you're supposed to have more questions, Mm -hmm. you know, like in the 80s and 90s, it was always like, you have more questions because that's, you know, how you kind of you know, define your faith yeah, and like strengthen that's how you, your own that's faith. That's how you move forward, right? And but yeah. now it's I, I don't know people. It's it's a little like I, I don't know. It's like people are a little more nervous. Like, it's like they have to like reeducate you know church members of how to treat people with questions or something. Or I don't know, maybe the questions that are being asked now sure. are a little more heavy. Yeah. As like the data is a little more easily available. Yeah, perhaps. Like, I mean, well, I think there's also a real emphasis within the church on knowledge. Right. You know, and we I mean like, like the the sort of the the. The pro forma language of testimony is I know, I know, I know, I know. Right. Right. And, and I think, you know, that, that word I know is it has a lot of rhetorical strength to it. It's a sense of like I am advocating for this thing. I am here without a doubt. Right. And so and so not having doubts then, if no is the sort of word of strength, not having doubts is a sign of strength. Mm-hmm. Having doubts then becomes kind of a sign of weakness. Right, right, right. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily true, but that's kind of the rhetorical path mm-hmm. that the kind of common language that we use leads us. And I think maybe that might be a good reason then for us to think harder about the language we use when we bear testimony, which of course can't be anything but a good thing, right? Not simply reciting stuff, reciting cliches and catchphrases when you bear your testimony is, is a good thing. Right. Do you, do you feel like you have to defend, you know, do you, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I guess I'm, I'm trying to say this. <coughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, do you feel like in, in kind of the world you're in academia, mm-hmm. um, in any way people look at you differently as being a Mormon? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, that's sort of what you think. Yep. Yeah, and yeah. how do you how do you deal with that? I guess. What's well, I mean, your... just what you need to do is simply, I think, be. Um, well, <coughs> excuse me. Academics speak a certain language, sure. and they speak the language that they do um, for good reasons. I think you know the kind of language of academia is designed to create a common space where people who believe a lot of different things can come together and talk. So I can go to a conference and I can have conversations about religion with a Sikh and a Muslim and a Catholic, and we and because we're all using academic language. We can all communicate with each other um, instead of, you know, just kind of bumping into walls because we have sort of fundamentally different beliefs on the nature of the world. Right. And what Mormons and academics... And I guess you're referring more like religion religion academics, right? Academics and academics... Yeah, well, academics, academics, we'll study religion, yes, right? That's yes. really, or historians, that's right? That's right. what I'm okay. training okay. is. Sure, and sure. so, yeah, and so I think what Mormons simply need to do is to show that they can speak that language. Right. Um, and, I mean, you know, it's... I, I think 
historically some Mormons have been suspicious of Mormons who speak that language. Sure. Um, do you think that still and, exists today? Oh, yeah, it's, it's certainly I mean, is it, has it dimin- is it diminished or is it uh, increased? It's, sort of, it's somewhat diminished, but, but yeah, I mean, I think... Yeah, well, I mean, for there's inst- just a lot more Mormon academics mm-hmm. now, right? There so, are. I mean, there it can are. Only well, for instance, when, when the when the story of the Latter Day Saints, which was a history of the church written by Glenn Leonard and James Allen, who are two PhDs in history, uh, wrote this book, Deseret Book published it in the early '80s, and they got a lot of criticism from inside the church. Oh, um, yeah. they got a lot of criticism because, for instance, they said that well, they talked about you know the cultural influences on Joseph Smith. Right. And that's kind of, I mean, that's language academia, right? Um, and, and and I think there, there's some fear in the church that if we ascribe anything at all, any sort of cultural influence on right. leaders of the church, it's the same thing as saying these people were not inspired right. or they made it up or right. whatever. And I don't think that's necessarily the case, right? I mean, I think, I mean, I think certainly there's a lot of scriptural evidence to promote the notion that, you know, that, that divine inspiration is mediated through what people are capable of understanding. Um, and yeah, but uh, but I think you know, there has certainly been suspicion of it. Um, I, it's still there in some ways. It's also I think, it vanishing as well. But I mean, I guess have you ever had to confront that in a way that you, I mean that you actually really like? Oh, how am I going to like you know, you know? I'm a Mormon. They're viewing me differently, and you know, how am I going to get through this kind of yeah, thing yeah, like it's, with it's, colleagues? It's, yeah, or, I mean, I mean it's, that... it's, it's, it's it certainly comes up, right? And, yeah. and people sort of suspect, and 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 um, yeah, and I think I really do. They feel comfortable asking you about it, like talking about no, it, because I mean, I've been in like work not, settings, not like business, yeah. business settings, where it's, it's very casual. We can just talk about it openly. But yeah. there's other settings where like, you can't really sure. go there. Yeah, like, I mean, I very think kind of informal settings. No, not at all. That people people would ask. And people are so afraid to like say anything about mm-hmm. it. I, I just mm-hmm. I had that. It, it, yeah. To me, it's kind of frustrating sometimes. Yeah. Where it's like, well, you can talk about it if you want to talk about yeah. it. Yeah. Well, but it's also right. I mean, I mean, for me, it's kind of the question on of does this impinge on your work? Right? Does the fact that you're a member of this church Sure. influence your writing and of course it does to some degree right but at the same time i don't think that you know being a member of any i mean me or a catholic or a jew or whoever writing about their own religion you know if as long as they adhere to the standards of the academy their work should be acceptable um and this is true actually i mean catholic there are very a number of very prominent catholic historians who are raised catholic who write about catholicism and and, and very few people are suspicious of their work because it's good yeah you know and so mormons just need to produce good work yeah, I mean, I think there was a piece I wrote about um, it was like a political science kind of you know, Latin America church growth mm-hmm. and like how the politics of that played out. Mm-hmm. And the professor that I presented to him initially as we were discussing mm-hmm. the research, mm-hmm. he was very like leery of what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. He, he was like, he's like, I don't know much about Mormons. I don't know. He yeah, just kind of yeah. felt weird. And but the more I got into it, and the more I realized that like what I was the issues I was discussing, mm-hmm. they don't only affect the Mormon church; mm-hmm. they actually affect a, a range of other churches sure. as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So like once you show that I think you're not looking at this from a myopic kind of yes. view, and you really kind yes. of do good work as you as you get yeah. closer yeah. to that. He, yeah. he became a lot more open and yeah. talking, and he really liked it a lot. Yeah. This is fascinating. Yeah. And I think that's kind of often been an issue for Mormons. Because they just want to writing, focus on what's yes. the Mormon take on this. Exactly. And, 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 and it can be, I think, somewhat narrow. Um, and, and what Mormon academics need to do is to show, well, here's why what I have to say about Mormons is irrelevant to someone who's just interested in American history and maybe not interested in Mormons at all specifically right you know this is why you should pay attention to mormons right that's that's i think and i think actually mormons are increasingly kind of of interest to the academy there's a lot of work being done by mormons and non-mormons on mormonism right now 
Yeah. Well, if if Randy Stark, if his um, projections hold true, they're probably going <laughs> to be already. Already, they've already they've already not proven true. <laughs> uh, well, they did they did hold true till about two thousand, <laughs> thereabouts or something. Or something like that. Well, I, well, I think there's the high estimate. Oh yeah. She was saying like three hundred estimate. Yeah. But then there's a low estimate, which yeah. I think it's it's like not too far, it's not too far from the low estimate. At least at least last yeah, I checked. I don't yeah. know maybe. I mean, I think what his low estimate was there ninety million by twenty fifty something like that. Yeah, by twenty eighty, I think he was saying sixty million. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Or no, eight, eight, I think eighty million by twenty eighty. In the lowest, I got it. I got it somewhere, somewhere yeah. But it, it was a lot. It's, it's in there. Oh, it's in there too. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I mean, I, I guess you know he hasn't been like like you know entirely. It wasn't like at least mm -hmm. up until about ten years ago. I think mm -hmm. where he predicted it wrong was he, ex he expected all these different countries to grow continuously yeah. when like they were in that kind of high period of right. exponential growth. Yes. But then he took the snapshot right at that. And he yeah. Oh, he's like, oh, let's just like yeah, continue. Yeah, the lines and can keep on going, right? And yeah, and there was that period, right, from the, like the that. Oh, 1950 to 1990 or so, where it just was exploding all over the place. Right, but there was very different things going on with like right. the, the politics, and economics mm -hmm. of the world, and even like the missionary teaching practices, yes, which right. have yes. no longer continued. Right, there have been lots of changes. So, yeah, I mean, you had explosive yeah. growth in like yeah. Latin America and Europe. Well, I think you know, I mean, what we've we've really pivoted to is retention, which is which is important, right? right? Because I mean, it's certainly as you know, right, a lot of these countries in the global south have just dismal activity rates. Um, sure, sure. You know, sure. And, and there may be, you know, the, the, the numbers who actually turn up on Sundays, maybe 10% of the numbers are on the books. Sure. Um, so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's an issue. And, and he kind of assumed there'd be like, I think now you're kind of getting into like the multi-generational, whereas like mm -hmm. the person was baptized in 1985 in a period of high growth. Mm -hmm. You know, they're still on the records. Yeah. But yeah. their kids that they're having now are probably not going to be yes, on the records. Certainly. And they were expected to be like you know, at three or four people mm -hmm. in the next mm -hmm. decade. And yeah. So it's kind of running that slow down period. Yes. But I think regardless of what he says, I mean, there's going to be a bit in your book you talk about the international um, yeah. which I see as the next barrier the next limit is you know getting more people like yourself that are skilled and qualified to talk about Mormon issues mm -hmm. but they're from you know Argentina or Brazil sure. or Absolutely. Japan or yeah. Korea yeah. 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 And, like, and how far are we from that because I get the sense we're pretty far off. <laughs> <laughs> well it depends on where you're talking about right sure um, I mean, I'm sure there's some pockets of yeah, exception yeah, but I, yeah. And there, there are pockets well like in Europe there, there's actually there's more over here yeah. oh yeah in, in, in Europe there are there are Pretty stable, sturdy, but not growing small pockets of Mormons, right? Yeah. Um, they're not kind of on the upswing, but they're 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 there and they're kind of hanging in there, right? They're not they're not going. But anywhere. I mean, are they can they be skilled um, and qualified qualified enough in their society to actually like represent and help? Um, like, well, even, there, there's for instance, there's a Mormon member of the of the English Parliament right now. Sure. Um, you know, and so there are some people like that, right? In a lot of parts where Mormons live in the U.S., yeah, you're kind of in the majority. We're not and like, well, like going into business. Sure. Being a Mormon is a good thing, but in a lot of countries, yeah, you not, just can't do that if you're a Mormon. Well, I, I think you know, and as you say, one of the strengths that that Mormons have in America is that Mormons are pretty solidly middle class in America. America, right, right, right. Romans are, they're kind of, they tend to be white, they tend to be middle upper class, they tend to live in the suburbs, they tend to be kind of, you know, culturally pretty. They caught that whole wave of capitalism, mm -hmm. and a lot, a lot of them yes. got wealthy, just yes. like a lot of other middle now, class. Now, to some extent, this is true in Britain, or not just in Britain, but in Europe as well. Right, right. Is it, in part because missionaries, you know, were there so long ago that there are multi-generational families um, right. in, 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 in Europe. Um, much less so, though, in the global south. Right. Um, now, again, there are pockets. Mexico, right, there's some pretty sturdy communities of Mexican Mormons, sure. um, you know, who are multi-generational have been there for, uh, for a long time and other other places in Latin America too. So do you think it's just but, a gradual thing just as we get yeah. more generations, more well, better established? Well, I think, you know, the, the issue is the retention, right? Is you need to kind of plant a family that will stay Mormon for multiple years. Um, and that, and that's hard. It's hard because the sort of cultural transformations that converts are expected to make in the global South are pretty daunting mm -hmm. in a lot of these countries, you know, um, and just lifestyle issues, right? I mean, you know, it's pretty demanding. But then, of course, also is, is sort of, you know, Mormon worship patterns, um, 
which are, are very, very, as I said before, are very, very sort of reminiscent of, of 19th century Protestant America. Um, the very kind of simple style, the sort of emphasis on reverence and sitting still and being quiet. Um, the hymns we sing, our organ fascination, right? All this is from 19th century Protestant. And that just doesn't export very well. Yeah. You know, places like Africa. I mean, there, there, there's a famous article, um, not very old, maybe six or seven years old now, by Philip Jenkins, who was uh, a very prolific academic, but is very well known for his book, The Next Christendom, which is about, you know, sort of where Christianity is going in the next hundred years or so. And it's the global south, of course. Um, but he wrote an article about Mormons. For the Mor- uh, he, he was the, the, the speaker of honor at the Mormon History Association seven or eight years ago. And he wrote an article. How was that received? Uh, very well, actually. And his article has been, it's kind of become a classic immediately. Um, I wish you remember the title. Um, boy, yeah, I'm like, but it was, but it was on this topic. Of but yes, it was. Growth. It was about. It was about. What well, was about Mormonism in Africa, uh-huh. yeah. particularly? Oh, it's called letting go. Letting go. Oh, you referenced yes, that in your book. I did, yes. Okay, yes. Yeah, letting letting go. Understanding Mormon growth in Africa is the title, and you can probably anybody who's listening can find it on Google if they just search for it. Um, but yeah, he 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 pretty, I think, thoroughly demonstrates Mormonism is growing rapidly in Africa, very rapidly, um, but not as rapidly as half a dozen other Christian churches. Right, right. And that's always the case in a lot yeah. of those other countries. And, and, we, don't, we don't realize yes. that. We never think of that aspect. And, and, and it's not growing as quickly as other churches are, he says, um, we don't the for these reasons. Right? We don't the, oh, for, well, what well he says, and he says, and this is fascinating, he says there's a lot about Mormonism that right. resonates with traditional African religion. This sort of focus on ancestors and relationships with your ancestors. Um, this ritual of temple worship is, right. is very right. you know, is, is very kind of in line with traditional African churches. And of course, I mean nobody's going out to Africa and converting like African animists or nature worshippers anymore because Christianity has been in Africa for three hundred years now. Right. It's usually yeah. the people that are already become. Yes. Christian. And so what, what we're going, you know, what Mormon missionaries are going for are are African Christians of other denominations. Right. But a lot of these African Christian churches are syncretic. That is to say, they are blends of this traditional African religion and culture with Christianity that's yeah. come from Europe and Africa. And Jenkins argues many of these other Christian churches are succeeding because they're allowing that syncretism to take place. Well, and since correlation, our hands are somewhat Precisely. tied behind our back Precisely. to go in. So wait, it kind of goes back to like, that's the strength of us. We can't right. adapt and we can yes. fight, you know. But yes. The, the, I mean, there is, there was, a, and I won't give his name because it might, you know, be a little, um, write as criticism of him. I do not mean it in that way. Sure, sure, sure. But there was a, 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 a member of the 70 who was, at, oh, oh, I forget precisely in what capacity he was, but he was supervising a number of different stakes in Africa for quite a while. And then he wrote a book about it. And the book is, is very enthusiastic about African Mormons and, you know, and, and, and tells a number of wonderful stories, but he also, I think, reveals a lot of these kind of cultural sensibilities mm-hmm. that are limiting this growth. He, for instance, he talks a lot about how he would go around to stakes and stop the worshippers in these stakes from standing up and dancing and clapping and singing during hymns, right? Um, because that's just not how Mormons do things, right? But it is how Africans worship. Um, he, he prevented instru- African instruments like drums. Drums are the big one, right? From being used in African services because, you know, white American Mormons don't perceive drums as reverent, yeah. right? You know, and, and just an issue and clothing is another one, right? The white shirt and tie thing, right? Um, issue upon issue upon issue like this, um, I think is is not stopping, and certainly Mormonism is growing in Africa, but it's not growing as fast as Jenkins argues it should be growing. It should be growing much faster than it is. Yeah, yeah. And there's these things that are holding it back. Well, well, they put a hold on that, I mean, a number of times, right? I mean, uh, I, I remember, like, about five or six years ago, I saw there's some stake presidents or some stake, pre- or, no, excuse me, mission presidents or 
missionaries, like elder couple missionaries. They spent some part in uh, some time in, in the Congo, Eastern Congo, mm-hmm. Lumumbushi, these like areas, yeah. these mining yeah. areas out in. And the church, uh, Elliot Church, was going really fast out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and a couple of apostles went out there and they visited. And they basically were putting a hold on, you know, kind of like, okay, just this is great. You're all interested. And yeah. they wanted to open to a new town, but it was yeah. an hour away from the nearest, mm-hmm. like kind of major city where there was an LDS. Like, they could have missionaries. Mm-hmm. And they kind of said to them, you know, um, I could feel there was just this energy and excitement there, yeah, yeah. but there was simultaneously like, well, we wish we could do something, but we just can't get people here for a few more years. So hold on. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and it seemed like the apostles were saying this like a bit apologetically kind of like, well, we wish this a little differently, but we yeah, can't really yeah. do much more because there's just all these constraints. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I, I don't know. Africa is an interesting topic in itself. I've read a couple of books recently about uh, it. Uh, um, there's just one book called King Leopold's Ghost. Hmm, yeah. It's about the whole Leopold, yeah, Belgian, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, control yeah, of Congo. Yeah, yeah. Ah, it's messy stuff. <laughs> it is. It is messy stuff. It's just sad. I think about 10 million people died according wow. to some estimates. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I'm not surprised. You know, it was, yeah, colonialism was an ugly, ugly thing. You know, and that's another issue I think that Mormons are facing, and, and certainly like in Latin America, right? There's a, there's a sense, you know, that the Mormons are basically American imperialists. Um, and, you know, I think the, the increasing use of, of native-born missionaries mitigates that to some extent. But the white shirts and ties... Mormon meeting houses, which, you know, are, are built according to, you know, uh, um, American standards are also kind of can be perceived as, as, as I think, kind of, I mean, wealthy American middle class right. people and buildings getting plopped down in, in poor Native Amer- areas, which is why, you know, there was a whole rash of bombings of Mormon church houses and attacks on missionaries yeah, right in, the, in the 80s and 90s, right? Yeah, so. Yeah, yeah there's hundreds of meeting houses that were attacked. I mean, yeah. where, where Mormonism mm-hmm. kind of like, it. it uh, kind of had some friction with like these left-wing guerrilla movements mm-hmm. in the 70s. I find that to be a fascinating <laughs> point well, of history. Yeah, because I mean, everyone's, everyone's following the missionaries around chanting CIA, CIA, right? Cause they, well, I mean, <laughs> well, I think now it's kind of like they're viewed more as now like international businessmen yeah, or conservative yeah, businessmen. Yeah, Whereas yeah, before yeah. it was kind of like, oh, a CIA conspiracy. Right. Just because that was the broader... Uh, back in the 70s, right? right? Absolutely. Because you had Operation Condor and all this, that kind of stuff going on in the 70s, right? So Yeah. yeah. But I mean, if you go around, I mean, so many countries, like if anything like murky goes on with any political, like, like a CIA conspiracy is like always like, oh, the Americans mess with this yep. yeah, it's just a catch-all for anything yeah, yeah, that's yeah. not easily understood by the yeah, broader public yeah, and yeah. you know maybe maybe it's well, part of it sometimes it happened well, hey, it yeah, totally no, happened it's, right? it's definitely I mean, there's, there's definitely some instances where <laughs> yeah where, I mean the CIA they overthrew three or four governments in Latin America at least in the, in the latter half of the 20th century oh yeah I mean like the degree so, of like compl- um, there was a book I saw though um a while back, though, it was about like the hundred assassinations that the CIA had coordinated. <laughs> and in the, the discussion, the yeah. author was saying, you know, like, well, this is actually not like an exhaustive list or something mm-hmm. like that. Because somebody was like, you know what, there's this other one that happened. Yeah, and he's yeah. like, yeah, that, that sounds correct. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I mean, there's many. Matthew Bowman, um, you're trusted by a lot of people that teach um, a lot of different things, history by your students, and you're trusted by um, your friends here in D.C. Thank you. And, um, <laughs> thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. All right, everyone. That does it for the show. I had a great time speaking with Matt Bowman. I hope you had a great time listening. If you have any comments or questions, anything at all about the show, send me an email at themarkpodcast at gmail.com or you can also find me on Twitter at themarkpodcast and remind you to follow uh, the podcast on SoundCloud. And pretty soon we'll be on iTunes and Stitcher. You'll be able to find the podcast everywhere. So you'll be able to share it with all your friends. So thanks, everyone. Until next time.